0: Thank you for listening to the Abundant Life Sermon Podcast. Abundant Life is based out of Lee Summit, Missouri and has campuses throughout the Kansas City metro area and online. We want to see your life changed by Jesus. For more information about Abundant Life or for locations and service times, visit livingproof.co. Thanks for listening.
1: We're in a series church called Do You Hear What I Hear? Because I'm convinced we hear these songs, but we don't really hear what they say. We sing them every year, but we don't fully understand them. And so we're in a series around four Christmas hymns with four Christmas sermons, and we're uncovering the forgotten theology that these ancient hymn writers knew about the Son of God, the day that He was born. I'm so glad that you're here for this. This song that we're talking about today, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it truly is ancient. It is a song, you can almost hear it, of lamentation. It's a song of expectation, anticipation. I pray the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, would finally come. And that's a little bit how I remember Christmas in the 1970s. This is the Hopper House Christmas, circa 1970s. Four little kids underneath the Christmas tree. You can see I'm the one in the red hat. I have figured out this Christmas thing at a very young age. Like, this is awesome. Like, Christmas is the best, clearly. But I'll tell you what we're thinking in this very moment. We thought the same thing on this day that we thought almost every single Christmas day growing up in our home. I wish dad would get here. Because, see, my dad worked almost every single Christmas. He was a shift worker, so he worked every single Christmas unless his days off just naturally, randomly fell on Christmas. And so what would happen is we would get up Christmas morning, we go first, of course, to our stockings, and then it was time out until my dad got home. And he worked until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, didn't get home until about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So you can imagine this house with four little kids, I mean, will dad ever get here? Because we couldn't have our Christmas dinner until dad got here, and it was after Christmas dinner that we'd finally open presents. So it was with great anticipation, as my mother is fixing, preparing Christmas dinner and the Christmas ham and the aromas filling the house and she was always making Christmas cookies and Christmas candies and fudge and caramels and that only kind of adds to the anticipation and we'd be running to the window, is dad here, he's not yet here and, and somebody'd stand guard at the window and just watch it and finally we'd hear, he's here and everybody have a celebration because Christmas had finally come and in some way, I think this ancient hymn writer has that in mind. That finally, someday, the Son of God would come, and you begin to see the anticipation that's in this hymn, the lamentation, oh God, would you come? And truly, this is an ancient hymn. As a matter of fact, it dates back over a thousand years to the monastic movement of medieval Europe. What we know from the 8th or 9th century, it's so ancient, nobody knows for sure when it originated, but somewhere in the 8th or 9th century, somewhere there was a European monk in a monastery that penned these words for the very first time in Latin. And understand, at the time, the world was speaking Latin, so the lyrics were in Latin, in all probability, they were not sung for centuries, they were chanted for centuries. There were seven stanzas originally, in O Come, o Come Emmanuel, and it would have been chanted every single day for seven days leading up to Christmas Eve with this anticipation finally of Christmas where they would celebrate the incarnation. Now, it wasn't put to music probably until the 15th century in France, and that's when the melody came that we now sing today. It's been translated in various uh, tongues and languages around the world. Been translated in English several times, first time in 1710. The one we're most familiar with, though there's a lot of variation even today in the lyrics, but the one we're most familiar with today came in 1815 compliments of this man, John Mason Neal, who was an Anglican priest. As you can see, he's in the Christmas spirit. <laughs> Obviously, he's got the joy of Jesus all over him, doesn't he? But he was an Anglican priest, and uh, the Church of England was trying to up their game at this time, seriously, up their game in worship, and they, they had this man begin translating some of these ancient hymns into English, and that's how it came to us today, all these generations later. Now, what amazes me most about these hymns, and especially this hymn that we now sing, and we're going to sing today, when I get done preaching, we're going to have communion, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, so when you think I'm done, we're not done, all right? Just so you know. Well, we're going to sing this hymn as a part of the Lord's Supper, and as we do, I pray that you'll hear what I hear, that you'll hear what God hears that we won't just sing the song, but you'll begin to hear what it really says that this ancient European monk captured in these lyrics. The theology of this hymn is amazing. It almost entirely comes from the Old Testament Jewish prophecies related to God's promise of a savior, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, while most modern Christmas hymns come from the very familiar images of the nativity, the baby in a manger, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, you got the wise men, this hymn is almost entirely from the Old Testament. And what amazes me about this hymn is somewhere, some unknown, unnamed monk was doing himself a Bible study. He was doing a really good Bible study. He was probably studying the Latin Vulgate at that time. The world spoke mostly Latin, and so in 400 AD, a man by the name of Jerome translated the ancient Hebrew and Greek manuscripts the was originally came with into Latin, the language of the day. And so he's studying Latin, and what amazes me is he connects some dots theologically that many modern theologians today don't make. He began to understand that this promised one that God promised the Messiah would one day come, that he would come through the Jewish people. And that is why every single stanza is a reference to Jewish prophecies and imagery. Now, the reason we sing these songs like today and don't really understand them is most modern Christians don't know anything about the Old Testament. They don't know anything about their Jewish roots and Christianity had been born out of Judaism. And so we hear these phrases and we sing them, but we don't even know what they mean. Like, O come, O come, rod of Jesse. Well, Just what kind of rod did Jesse ride anyway? oh uh, come, O come, day spring. What is that? That's, that's like a greeting card company, isn't it? What does any of this even mean? And we're going to see today what it means, the remarkable theology embedded In this ancient Christmas hymn. It all comes back primarily to one of these prophecies. Isaiah 7.14. It's repeated over and over again. O come, O come, Emmanuel. 700 years B.C. The Hebrew prophet Isaiah he wrote in Isaiah 7:14. therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel can be written with an I. It can be written with an E. It doesn't really matter. Either way, it means the same thing. God with us. You see, God is revealing this promised seed of Genesis 3.15, which I talked at length about last week. Genesis 3.15, this promised seed of the woman would one day come born of a virgin, and he would be a man, but unlike any other man, he would be the God-man. God became a man to become our sacrificial lamb. And you have this prophecy 700 years BC that he'd be known as Jesus, yes, that means savior, but he have another name, known as Emmanuel, and it means God with us. So who was Jesus? He was God with us. And you have this hymn that's making lamentation and expectation of what the Son of God would do when the Son of God would finally come. And so we have the very first verse. Let's start to break this down a little bit, all right? We're gonna be in Genesis chapter 12, Isaiah chapter seven. We've got several places we're gonna go, but if you wanna open your Bible to Genesis 12, we're gonna start there. Here we go. Here's the, it says, O come, O come Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. I want you to see, historically, this monk in. Europe, 8th or 9th century, what's going on historically as he writes these words? O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Now, what's amazing, this monk understood that Israel is front and center to the salvation of the nations, that God had promised a Redeemer, and that Redeemer would come through the Jewish people. And at this time in history, what's happening? Indeed, Israel had been dispersed among the nations. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied that if the Jews reject, their Messiah, and that's what happened. John 1, verse 11, he came into his own, but his own received him not. What would happen? Because of their rebellion and the rejection of the Messiah, the promised one, is they would be scattered abroad among other nations. Now God also promised that one day he would bring them back again, and that's why after century after century of the Jews being scattered abroad about 100 years ago, miraculously the Jews were allowed to return to the land of their forefathers. 135 5 AD the Romans drove them out of the ancient land of Israel legally they could not return what happens in in the 7th century A.D.? It was the Muslim invasion. So at this time, as this European monk is pinning these words, Israel is being held in captivity by the Muslims. Not only that, they've been scattered abroad among the nations. And you see that understanding come out right here in this verse. What will happen when Jesus comes again? Listen very carefully. Many of these prophecies he fulfilled partially in his first coming, yet he will fulfill completely in his second coming. And there's coming a day that not only will Israel be delivered and he will indeed establish that kingdom that will be without end, but currently we too are being held captive, captive to this curse of sin that still is over all of creation. And so you see this monk, and he's writing these words, O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Now what's amazing, this monk knew something, That others around him did not know. You remember what happened about the 10th, 11th centuries? The Roman Catholic Church did something we now know in history as the Crusades. What were the Crusades about? What they were hoping to do was redeem captive Israel from the Muslims. And it was a bloody, awful time of history. And what this monk understands is that captive Israel cannot be redeemed through the modern weapons of conventional warfare, but rather only when the Son of God would come. And when indeed he comes, all of us will be redeemed, not just Israel. And that's why you see this lamentation, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, Oh, Israel. And so let's do something we have never done in the life of our church, not one time, and we may never do it again. I'm not sure. But I want to pretend that this is an ancient European monastery, and we have a bunch of monks. And remember, these monks would have chanted these lyrics leading up to Christmas Eve. We're not going to chant them, but we are going to sing them. So I would like all the men of Abundant Life to stand up right now. That's right. Blue Springs, Independence, all the church houses. Everybody's going to participate. Your wives are going to love you for this, okay? Ladies, this is very risky. This is very scary for men to do. So right now, cheer your man on, would you? Okay, here we go. Now, as we sing, ladies, you might just... Put your head back, close your eyes, and just pretend this is an ancient European monastery and all the monks right now are going to sing. I'll get us going then. I'm going to drop out, man. Well, because it sounds like a solo on the live stream if I don't, okay? All right, here we go. O come o come me man you and ransom captive Israel. Until the Son of God appears, rejoice! Rejoice! He that shall come to thee, O Israel. Amazing! Wow! Gentlemen, well done, well done. We didn't know we could do it, we did. Now you begin to see though, the, the, the meaning behind those words. That our our Savior would come through the Jews. It's directly tied to Israel. A lot of people don't understand why Christianity is so intertwined with Judaism and the nation of Israel specifically, but this ancient monk understood exactly the connection and the relationship and the implications. Christianity is rooted in Judaism because God promised a, a Savior King that would emerge through the Jews and the nation of Israel. This is why Jesus would say in John John four twenty two. that salvation is of the Jews. Now, notice he did not say salvation is for the Jews. No, he said salvation is of the Jews. This is why uh, the Jews are called God's chosen people. Not that he loves the Jews more than he loves me and you, but that God chose the Jews, that through the Jews, this promised Savior, this Messiah would one day emerge. He'd one day come. You ever wonder why there's so much anti-Semitism even today? I mean, why? What is it with the Jews that people love to hate on? Well, the truth is, it's not just today, it's historically, century after century, something the Jewish people have endured. I'll tell you why. Because the devil hates the Jews. It was the Jews that gave us Jesus. It was the Jews that gave us that virgin-born savior, Genesis 3.15, that crushed the head of the serpent. You better believe Satan hates the Jews. And that's why even today, in this modern world we live, the Jews are continue to be hated for reasons Frankly, almost unknown, because the Jews would give us our Savior, those Jews that would give us our Redeemer. God promised Abraham, the father of the Jews, that through his seed, all the people of the earth would be blessed. Now, what happens is God begins in Genesis chapter 12, if you wanna turn there, he begins separating out for himself a man that would father a specific nation through which the promised seed would one day emerge. Think about it, had God not done this, anybody could have come on the scene and said, I'm the promised one. Yeah, I'm that guy. I'm the anointed one. But you see, Jesus could make that claim because he could prove that he fulfilled these Jewish prophecies made about him centuries ahead of time, and many of these prophecies had to do specifically with his genealogy. Look at what it says in Genesis 12. Theologians call this the Abrahamic covenant. Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land I will show you. He's called out from the ancient city of the earth, of the Chaldees and what is today Iraq and the Fertile Crescent between the Tigris and the Euphrates. He says, go to a land I will show you. We know today that was the land of Israel, the ancient land of Canaan. And I will make you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." God promises this man, Abram, his name means exalted father, that he's going to become Abraham, the father of nations. Now, the only problem for Abram and his wife, Sarah, is that they were barren. They could have no children. It's going to be really hard for a man with no children to be a father of nations when he can't even father a single son. So after 25 years, God makes good on this promise. See, we think God has forgotten. If God doesn't do what we want him to in the next 10 minutes, Think about that for a moment. God made a promise and waited 25 years for it to happen. See, God does everything from eternity, not time. Yet he's always on time. And in the fullness of time, a son was born miraculously to Abram. His name was Isaac. And God begins giving us a lineage specifically through which this promised seed would emerge from Abraham to Isaac. Isaac had a son by the name of Jacob. In Genesis 32, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Israel had 12 sons that would father the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons was Judah. And God, through the centuries, beginning in 1900 BC in the life of Abraham, begins specifically giving us the lineage and the ancestry of this. This savior king from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, whose name chase was Israel, to Judah, who'd fathered the tribe of Judah. And then specifically, this promised seed would come through Judah. And God makes him this promise that in you, all the nations, all the people are going to be blessed, that a savior king is going to come through your posterity. And ultimately, he's going to deliver salvation for everybody, not just the Jews. Now, there's more to the Abrahamic covenant than just Genesis. Genesis 12. You have Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 15, God gives the promise of the Abrahamic covenant, not simply that Abraham is going to be a blessing to all nations, but also a specific land grant, a specific piece of real estate in the Middle East. In Genesis 15, God gives the coordinates of that land grant that he was giving to Abraham and his descendants, the Jews. He said it goes from the Nile River and the Mediterranean on the west, clear to the Euphrates on. The east. Now remember, Jesus came the first time and fulfilled the promises partially. He's going to come the second time and fulfill the promises completely. And we know that is true because if that's not true, then that makes God a promise maker and also a promise breaker. Because nowhere in Israel's history have the Jews inhabited all of the promised land, they inhabited all the land west of the Jordan. But they never inhabited the land east of the Jordan, and only when Jesus comes again, O come, O come, Emmanuel, will God fulfill all the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And this ancient monk connected the dots in ways modern theologians have not. There's something called replacement theology. Good godly people that love Jesus sometimes believe in something called replacement theology. I do not. And the reason I don't is because... When God makes a literal promise, church, he intends to keep it literally. Not symbolically, not spiritually. See, replacement theology says the church has become the spiritual Israel. Now, wait a minute. Try doing this on your wife Friday night, guys. You ask your wife out on a date. You say, honey, we're going to go on a date, and I promise to take you to the plaza. If you live in Kansas City, it's the plaza. And we're going to go to the Capitol Grill. Yeah. And we're going to go on a hot date, honey. Yeah, I might even put on my nicer clothes for this one. (laughs) Friday night rolls around. Instead of driving to the plaza to go on the Capitol Grill, no, instead you drive to Chick-fil-A. And your wife looks at you, wait a minute, I thought you promised to take me to Capitol Grill. Oh, honey, I was just speaking symbolically. I didn't mean you to take me literally. Yeah, what kind of a man would you be? What kind of a man would God be if he makes this promise, but he didn't intend to keep it literally, else just symbolically? No, 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 wait a minute. God intends to keep it literally, and there's coming a day that Emmanuel will come. He's delivered captive Israel and all people already from sin's penalty, and when he comes again, he's gonna establish a kingdom for a 1,000 years, Revelation chapter 20. He's gonna rule and reign from Jerusalem on a throne, and the nations of the earth will worship the Jewish Messiah. And check this out. When that thousand years is over, eternity begins. It will go on and on and on and on. And during that thousand years, the Jews will be nation among nations and they will indeed inhabit all the promised land. That's the Abrahamic covenant. And this ancient European monk seemed to understand that. He seemed to connect the dots. Now, there's a second verse. Look at this one. O comb thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. What on earth is this rod of Jesse? What does that even mean? All right, so this is another messianic title. And because modern Christians don't study the Old Testament like this ancient monk was studying the Old Testament, we don't connect the dots. These phrases don't mean anything to us. And that's why we've called this series, Do You Hear What I Hear?, Because we're about to sing this and I hope that you'll eventually hear this and begin to understand this because this is a messianic title. Not only did God promise that the seed of Genesis 3.15 would come from the seed of Abraham to his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, he'd his name to Israel, he'd have 12 sons, of which Judah was one, and that seed would go from Abraham to Isaac to Israel to Judah, but now from the tribe of Judah, God begins separating out for himself a specific family, This is why those boring parts of the Bible are actually the most important parts of the Bible, the genealogies. I mean, we start with the nativity when we talk about Christmas, but check this out. Luke doesn't start with that. Matthew doesn't either. They start with the genealogy. You know why? Because the genealogy proves that Jesus had the correct ancestry. This is why the Jews, very carefully, you're into Ancestry.com, check it out. The Jews were too. And every single generation would carefully record who begat who and who begat who, who was the father of who. Because they knew that one day, specifically, the Messiah would come. And he would need to prove his genealogy, his ancestry. And so you have now God specifically taken a man from the tribe of Judah. He says, Jesse, you're going to be the one. And from your family tree, there's going to be a branch. And from that single branch, the Messiah is going to come. You see, Rod of Jesse is a messianic title of the Messiah. So, ladies, your men did really good. I'll bet you can do better. Ladies, would you stand? We're going to sing this now. Blue Springs, Independence, all the church houses. Let's do this together. Listen, if the fellas can do this, I know you can do this. Let's hear all those beautiful feminine voices raising their voice to heaven, praising the rod of Jesse. I'll get you going. I'm going to drop out, okay, because I will mess it up. Okay. Oh, come thou rod of Jesse, free. beautiful choir we got at Abundant Life. You can almost picture those ancient monks chanting it. It'd be centuries before they would sing it. And here we are today. What's he saying? The one that would come Uh, the rod of Jesse, the one that would be in the lineage of Jesse. He will redeem us from sin's penalty. He will take over from Satan's tyranny. What happened when Adam sinned? Dominion of the earth was transferred from Adam to Satan. Remember, God had given Adam dominion, Genesis chapter one, but when he sinned, that dominion was transferred to Satan, which is why 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4 calls Satan the God of this world. 1 John 5, 19, the entire world lies under the power of the Wicked one. But when the promised one would come, that counterfeit king would have to retreat and relent what was once his. And Jesus is that king, the Savior king that redeems us from the curse of sin and all of creation. 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this ancient European monk understood this king would redeem all of Adam's posterity from Satan's tyranny, redeeming us from sin's penalty. It says these words in Isaiah 11, verse 1. Here's the prophecy. 700 years BC there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots now Jesse you can read about this in 1st Samuel chapter 7 had eight sons his youngest son was named David David becomes the greatest king in Israel's history and what is this prophecy? It was simply a prophecy that from Jesse's family tree there would be a shoot or a branch that would branch off the family tree and specifically that branch would be the household of David. You see this term or this title, Rod of Jesse is a messianic title which speaks of Christ's lineage as a son of David. David was the son of Jesse and Jesus then is the son of David. And this is why if you read the New Testament, those that braised Jesus as the Messiah the promised one they would often see him coming and they would say son of david son of david and as they would say son of david they were ascribing to him in fact that he is the messiah they were receiving him as the messiah as this title said you are the promised one son of david you see what this title implies is the davidic covenant you've heard now of the abrahamic covenant there's also something called the davidic covenant god makes a covenant a promise about a thousand years BC with this great king over Israel by the name of David. Second Samuel chapter seven verse twelve. And when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed. Remember that promised seed of Genesis 315. That seed now has come through Jesse, and now his son David, he says, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Church, what does forever mean? Yeah, you don't need a PhD in theology to understand this, do you? Forever means forever. This is clearly an advanced Sunday school class. I can tell it's clearly advanced. I'm telling you this because only a theologian can mess this stuff up. Do you know in Genesis chapter 17, God told Abraham, This is an everlasting covenant I'm making with you. There are those that believe the Abrahamic covenant has been broken because they crucified the Jews. God is now done with Israel, He's done with the Jews. Yet God told Abraham, This is an everlasting covenant I'm making with you. What does everlasting mean, anyway? How can something that can end be everlasting? If indeed that's true what does that give hope for us I mean Jesus said in John 3:16 God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life does God mean what he says God told Abraham, this is an everlasting covenant. I'm gonna make good on this promise, every part of it. God told David, this is an everlasting covenant, that one day one of your sons will sit on your throne forever and establish your kingdom forever. Now we know it could not have been Solomon, who was the son of David, that would sit on that throne after David. You know how we know? Because Solomon died Yet there's going to be one who comes that never ever dies, that sits on that throne forever. Yes, the son of David, the rod of Jesse. He is that promised seed. And when Jesus comes again, he will sit on a throne literally reigning over the nations for a thousand years. Revelation chapter 20, he'll fulfill all the promises of the Abrahamic covenant and the Jewish people will be in all the land, not just part of the land, for a thousand years. And he will establish David's kingdom then forever. When that thousand years are over, eternity begins. He sits on that throne and that eternal kingdom forever. Endeavor, 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 endeavor. It's an everlasting kingdom. Isaiah 9, verses 6 through seven, for unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. Hey, I want you to notice how meticulous the language is. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. You know why the son cannot be born? Because the son has always existed. The child could be born, but the son could only be given. You see, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's deity. He's from everlasting. He's from eternity. For unto us a son is born, for unto us a child is born for unto us a son is given and the weight of his government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David to order it and establish it from that time forward even forever. Isaiah 9 verses 6 through 7. See, the prophets were prophesying specifically a savior king who would be the son of David, the rod of Jesse, And he would establish that kingdom forever and sit on David's throne forever and ever and ever. And when Jesus comes again, that's exactly what will happen. Had he been received by the Jews the first time, he already would be sitting on that throne, literally, physically on the earth. And we'd already be in eternity, the thousand year kingdom over. But because they rejected him, God said, time out, I'm gonna fulfill this partially. And when Jesus comes again, I'm gonna fulfill it completely. And this ancient... European monk seemed to understand this. Now, here's the third verse. We're done. There's seven. We don't have time to do them all. We're going to stop with the third one. Then we're going to do the Lord's Supper and communion. And we're going to sing this together. Here, here's the third verse, the third stanza O come, thou day spring from on high, and cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. What is day spring? Day spring is an old English term for a new day, a new dawn. This actually comes from Luke chapter one. There was a man by the name of Zechariah, a very godly priest who could have no children. He was barren with his wife, Elizabeth. And God says, you're gonna have a son. And yes, you're barren, but it's gonna be miraculously, John the Baptist is born. And John the Baptist would be that one that would be the predecessor and be the one that was the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord. And what happens is Zechariah doesn't believe God. Think about it. If you're 100 years of age and God says you're going to have a son, it'd be a little unbelievable. In fact, that would take a miracle. And God says, okay, because you don't believe me, I'm going to make you mute. You won't be able to speak the entire time Elizabeth is pregnant and expecting the son. You're going to call him John. John. And that's exactly what happened. And as soon as John was born, God gave him back his speech. And the first thing out of his mouth was a prophecy and a praise over this little boy, John the Baptist, that would prepare the way for Jesus. And here's part of that prophecy. Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And this ancient European monk takes this very portion of this prophecy and puts it now to Lyric. You see, Emmanuel is the dayspring. Dayspring is a title for the Messiah. And when he comes, a new day will dawn. The night will soon be over. Revelation 22 and verse five, there's coming a day that we will no longer need any light from the sun, S-U-N, for it'll be the light of the sun, S-O-N. It will be the bright white light of God that will chase away forever the darkness of the day. It'll never again be night. Oh, daylight forever and ever when the day spring comes. Now, here's what's amazing, and I gotta be done embedded in this by this ancient, unknown, unnamed European monk is a hidden message. This was often done in ancient days through Latin. Latin was read backwards. We actually sing today was once the last stanza because Latin was read backwards, right to left instead of left to right. And this ancient monk actually hides a message in the text of the original seven standards of Ocum, come, o come." Now, this doesn't work in English, but if you go back to Latin, this works. You have the seven standards, all of which begin with a messianic title. Uh, "Sapientia, wisdom, O Adonai, God. O come, O come, Radix Jesse, stem or Root of Jesse. O come, O come, Clavis David, Key of David. O come, O come, Oriens, Dayspring. O come, O come, Rex Gentium, King of the Gentiles. O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, when you look at the Latin and these Messianic titles, you see the first letter on each one of these. And when you put each of those first letters together you have an acronym that spells Sarkor. But remember, Latin was read backwards. When you read it backwards, these letters form a two-word acrostic, Erocras, which means I will be present tomorrow. Yeah, I'm sure that was just coincidental. This ancient monk, just he, he just lucked into this. No, he's embedding a hidden message. And the message is this. Jesus has come once and he will come again. He will come again. And as we celebrate his first coming and that's what we do at Christmas, it is a reminder that Jesus is coming again. And what this monk could not have imagined, he couldn't have fathomed the rebirth of Israel No, at this time in history, it was unimaginable, it was unfathomable, but he understood that the Son of God could not come again, Emmanuel, while the people were not in the place, and the people, the Jews, were not in the place. They were scattered among the nations. He could not have imagined that just a 100 years ago, God would make good on this promise that the Jews are back in the place, and Israel has been reborn as a nation. You know why? Because Jesus Christ is coming again. We are in the season of a second coming. And that is why wherever you are in life, some of us are going through a very difficult, very dark time. We can remember that there is joy in the season. That there's joy for a reason and joy is found in Jesus. So let's stand right now. I'm gonna pray. As soon as I say amen, we're going to sing to the king. Jesus, we worship you. We praise you. For you are the king of kings. You're that promised seed of Genesis 3.15. You're the one that has crushed the head of the serpent. And one day you will forever reverse the curse of sin. We sing with anticipation, O come, O come, Emmanuel. It's with joy that we sing to our King. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure and subscribe and share with a friend. We hope today's message inspired and challenged you. Let's go be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. For more information about Abundant Life, visit livingproof.co or follow us on social media at AbundantLifeLS.